Thanks, Vicky. Morning, everybody. Good to be back with you again. to that in a moment. Um, I would like to just add my recommendation that you come to these seminars that we're starting next week. Uh, we were going to start this week but I miscalculated on Mother's Day and that's a date that you don't want to interfere with isn't it? So uh, uh, that would have been a very bad miscalculation. Uh, but it's been suggested that it would be a good thing and the whole point of it is to, to come to grips with what the Bible teaches about hot button issues. Now the first of those seminars will be on the Bible itself uh, because we've moved a long, a long way past the day when Billy Graham could stand in front of an audience of people and hold up the Bible and say, um, the Bible says. The answer to that for most people today is, so what? Now if we're going to be Christian people, every, everybody needs a foundation. The, the, um, my uncle used to be a, a lecturer at a teacher's college in Melbourne and one day he was involved in a debate in the common room and uh, somebody had a crack at him for quoting the Bible. Now, my uncle was quite a bright man and he was good on his feet and he said to him, whenever you talk about English, because they were lecturers in the English faculty, he said, you're always quoting your authorities. In other words, the scholars whose work he's found most helpful. He says, the Bible's my authority. He did it gently he did it humbly, but he was sincere and he was firm. And that's the way we need to be. But the Bible is our authority because it's God's word. But you need to be gripped by that. You need to get a confidence that when, you, when you're speaking Bible truth, you're on solid ground, right? Um, now, I, you know, it's been my privilege and pleasure to have done some work on that over the years because I needed to convince myself that what I believed was on solid ground. And so we'll be starting with what, with the authority of the Bible and why, why it's sensible, why, why it's rational to believe that the Bible is God's word. So that's seminar one. Then we'll be looking at racism because that's a big issue and the whole issue of love and sex and marriage and gender and all those sorts of things. Then the last of them is going to be suffering because that's one of the biggies. Um, it's one of the key things that people say, I can't believe in God who would allow suffering. Well, we live in a world where suffering is normal. So is it sensible to believe in a God who's created a world that where suffering is normal? So they're the four things that we're going to be thinking about, and I hope you'll plan to be there, because I will be. <laughs> uh, and it will be interactive. So please bring your questions. It's not just going to be a lecture. Please think about it and, and think, what is it that you'd like to know? What, what, what's on your mind? Uh, you know, how can we help? That's the point of it. Uh, let's pray, and, uh, and then we'll read Ephesians 2 and, and keep going. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Help us to come today as those who are contrite and lowly of spirit. Uh, we pray that by your spirit that you would revive our spirits today. Um, please cause us to be willing in our hearts, uh, open in our ears, and we pray that as uh, you instruct us through your word today that you would change us and make us more like Jesus. We pray these things for his name. Amen. Righto, Ephesians chapter 2. We're continuing our series in Paul's letter to 
the Ephesians, and we're picking it up today at verse 11. So Ephesians 2, verse 11. And the Apostle writes, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now we're going to try to make this technology work. Uh, we're going to do this right now. There we go. How would you describe our world if you if it was your job to to, to give a description? What what kind of condition is the world in? How are we travelling as a a population on this planet? Are we going okay? Anybody notice any problems out there? All right. There are one or two. That's why we have politicians. Did you know? because every three or four years they tell us we can fix it and we keep believing them and keep electing them right Uh, but i would say that one of the characteristics of our world is that it's badly divided Uh, and it seems to me that the divisions are growing wider and deeper almost on a daily basis now one of the most obvious uh, divisions is that of race uh it's been pretty obvious at different times these divisions and and they're put in people's faces so this is a photo from the united states from the southern states even in the 20th century uh, if you went to a washroom there was a basin for white people and a basin for colored people Uh, there were separate entrances into cinemas and all sorts of other there were there were separate doors to go into cafes there were cafes that simply just didn't serve coloured people as they used to be known that's the world right of course in recent times we've had the apartheid system in south africa where people were classified by race but that's not the only division in the world Uh, in my time i I can remember growing up in the 60s in melbourne and the divisions between protestant and catholic were pronounced and it used to be that there were certain areas of government employment that were almost closed to you if you were a Catholic or vice versa if you were a Protestant. Certain industries. 
Um, those of us who can remember the 1960s will remember that our TV news every night had stories of the troubles in Northern Ireland. Remember that? It's still festering away, I think. But uh, there's others as well. Uh, Sunni versus Shia in Islam. Different ways of seeing the Islamic faith. And those people both claim allegiance to Islam and yet they're at war with each other. Uh, I taught a girl um, back in the 90s and uh, she was, her father was Croatian. When the, when the Balkan War was on, she announced in class one day, my dad said last night if he saw a Serb, he'd kill him. I thought, wow, the way she said it made it sound like he meant it. Serb versus Croat in the Balkans. What about Chinese versus Japanese? We had a Chinese girl stay with us once. She was an exchange student. And through a miracle of bad planning, the school also had a collection of Japanese students in the school at the very same time. The Japanese exchange program was just coming to an end and the Chinese one was just about to start. And our delightful Chinese exchange student, Vivian, came home and said with real anger, she said, I hate Japanese. Because she'd been taught in Chinese history classes what the Japanese inflicted on the Chinese during the Second World War. That's what she said. I met a man um, at a conference some years ago. Now, very often when the subject is racism, you'd think it's all one-way traffic, wouldn't you? You'd think it's all white versus black. But I met a man from Zimbabwe, and he was a lawyer. And uh, he was at this Christian conference having come to Australia. He was warned by a member of the security agency in Zimbabwe that he had two hours to live. Now, he was a black African, and yet he was the wrong tribe in the context of Zimbabwe because uh, President Mugabe was a Shona and this man was a, a member of the Nabeli tribe. And so he was a good lawyer and he'd won just one too many cases against the, the powerful forces. And so he carried his passport with him wherever he went. He went straight to the airport and phoned his wife from Perth Airport and said, I'm safe, but I'm in Perth. There's hostility between people of the same colour. It's not just white versus black. Uh, some years ago, friends of ours, we had two lots of friends who went to the Northern Territory to work in a, a school up there as house parents of boarding houses where Aboriginal girls from various places in the Northern Territory came to get an education. Now, one lot of our friends were looking after a house full of girls that came from the Central Desert. And the other lot of our friends were looking after a household full of girls that came from the coastal region. These two lots of friends thought, because they knew each other in Melbourne, it would be a good idea to bring their girls together and have a picnic. And they discovered that the girls wouldn't talk to each other. At all. And so on the bus on the way home... One of my friends asked his girls very tentatively what was the problem because they thought having a picnic together would be a good thing. And the girl who spoke up said they got no culture. Because, you see, the coastal ladies felt they had nothing in common with people from the desert who'd never seen the sea. So this problem of division is not as simple as one-way traffic, white versus black. Division is a part of the human condition and every one of us finds it very easy to see things in others that bring that division to life every one of us it doesn't matter where you're from 
Back in the day that the Bible was written, uh, those divisions were obvious. It's, it's no different now. But one of the starkest of divisions was the, the division of Jew and Gentile. I don't know how Gentiles thought about it. They didn't call themselves Gentiles. Gentile was the Jewish word for this phenomenon. But in the time that the Bible was written, the Roman uh, civilization, the Roman Empire had taken over most of Europe and, and Northern Asia and uh, Eastern Asia and, and North Africa, uh, Western Asia, I should say. Get your geography right, son. Uh, Jews were scattered right throughout the empire. And Jews were a distinctive people, and so therefore the relationships they had with their neighbours was often um, hostile. So what did uh, Jews think about Gentiles? William Barclay, the Christian scholar and and great historian, he says that, uh, that Jews treated Gentiles with immense contempt. Gentiles were created by God, apparently, as fuel for the fires of hell. That's the way Jews thought about them. Uh, God loved only Israel of all the nations that he'd made and so therefore Jews regarded it as unlawful to help a Gentile woman in childbirth because that would mean one more Gentile was being born. Uh, The barrier between Jews and Gentiles was absolute. It was not possible for a Jewish person to marry a Gentile. If they did, they were considered dead and the family would hold a funeral. Even going in to eat with a, a Gentile family made you ritually unclean. That was the Jewish attitude to Gentiles and yet they lived amongst them. Well, what about the Gentile attitude to Jews? Well, the Roman historian Tacitus is probably representative of, uh, of, of the way that most people felt about the separation. And so Tacitus, in describing the Jewish people in his book, The Histories, he says that they're the race detested by gods. All their customs are perverse and disgusting. Their religion is tasteless and mean. And what he meant was they don't eat with other people and they won't intermarry with them. And they don't have any images. You can't see their God. The Jews are extremely loyal toward one another, he said, and also always ready to show compassion. But toward every other people, they feel only hate and enmity. Theirs is the vilest of nations. So they're good pals, aren't they? What hope in that world is there for reconciliation? If you've been raised to think of the other in those terms, what hope is there of reconciliation? Now, sometimes people say, oh, I can't believe in God. I'd believe in God if you'd show me a miracle. Let me tell you, friends, that the church is a miracle because where else are you going to find the dividing line of hostility between Jew and Gentile broken down? Who else is going to accomplish it? American presidents keep going to Camp David to broker peace deals with the the Middle East. It hasn't worked yet. Where else but inside the church, and this is an ongoing challenge for us, to to keep knocking away at those those walls that uh, that separate people. But, um, my uh, methods aren't... Now this here, that's a, a stone that was... It was discovered in 1871. It was the stone that was placed in a wall in the temple in Jerusalem that warned Gentiles that if they went beyond it, their death would be on their own heads. It was discovered in 1871. It's now held in a a museum in Turkey. There's another one that was discovered in 1936. Uh, That was the, the extent of the animosity between Jews and Gentiles. And so we're thinking about Christ's new humanity as we look at Ephesians chapter 2. Please keep your Bibles open. Uh, What we see here is a vision of life before Christ. So BC, before Christ. 
Uh, and so Paul says to the Ephesians, therefore remember. In other words, they need, it to, they need to bring it to mind what they used to be. And that's a good lesson for all Christians. We need to have it in mind what we once were. Because when we see what we once were, then we'll have an appreciation for what we've become. And so what Paul's saying to the Ephesian Christians is remember where you've come from because the people in Ephesus were not Jews. They were Gentiles who'd come to believe in the Jewish God. And so Paul says to them, remember where you've come from. Now we do that as well. We've got the, the saying, lest we forget. So Anzac Day, Remembrance Day, every year we, we remember what others have done on our behalf and we'll see memorials around the place lest we forget. Well, what do the Ephesians need to remember? What is it important that they never forget? Well, it's back in the early part of chapter 2. They need to remember that once they were dead in their transgressions and sins. We sang before, they were the living dead. They could walk, but they were dead spiritually. The transformation came about because God, who is rich in mercy, made them alive. They've been saved by grace. It's nothing they've earned, nothing they deserved, but they've been saved for a lifetime of good works. So that's what they used to be. And Paul says, you must remember that. Then he goes on and he amplifies it again. And so this is a parallel. He's drawing parallels here. He says that their status used to be that they were separated from Christ. It was as though there was an an unbridgeable gulf between them and Christ. The second aspect of their estrangement was that they were alienated from the Commonwealth of Israel. In other words, they'd been left out. It was as though there was this other gang of people that were having a great time with privileges that they were not party to. He backs that up with a a similar statement. He says, you're strangers to the covenants of promise. They were outsiders. It's as though God has dealt specially with the Jews. He's given them privilege that the Gentiles simply weren't party to. And then the fourth aspect of their old way of life is that they're people without hope and without God in the world. These are people with no future. To live without hope is a terrible way to be, isn't it? And that is a characteristic of our world now. Because our world has got people believing that all they can really believe in is themselves. And if there's no God, then ourselves will find themselves in the ground one day and that is as good as it gets. Now when you think too hard about that implication, then you're left with no hope. And is it any wonder that our world is looking in the way it does? We've got record levels of adolescent depression. We've got record levels of adolescent self-harm and suicide. And that's because our world has created an understanding that this is a world without hope. And Paul says to the, the Ephesian Christians, that's what you were. You were people without God and without hope. Now that word without God in Greek is atheos. Does that sound familiar? It's very similar to our word atheist. Now these were people that did believe in gods. But Paul says believing in all those gods is actually of no practical use to you. Because Paul's theology, and it really makes sense, there's only one God. And to not believe in the God who's revealed himself to Israel means that you're outside of him, you're without God. So is this a problem for the Gentiles? Would they be too worried about being alienated from the commonwealth of a people that they despised? Would they be too worried about 
not being party to the covenants of Israel, remembering what we have heard about how Gentiles felt about Jews. Would they be worried about that? Well, they ought to be. Because, you see, the scriptures are clear that God has... There's only one God, and he has revealed himself to one nation, and that's Israel. They were his message carriers. They didn't do a very good job of it. They were meant to, but they didn't. But in the book of Amos, um, the prophet says, you only have I known of all the families on earth. That's what God says. He chose one nation to, to take his message to the world. Jesus agreed with it. He said to the woman at the well at Samaria that salvation is from the Jews. Now, this is where the rubber hits the road. You may not like the sound of this, but if there's one God and if he's got one plan of salvation and you don't like it, you've got the problem. You know, people think that God's a pushover. Uh, So we can just treat him any old way, but he made the world and he made us and he gets to set the rules. And if he chooses one nation to announce his plan of salvation, we'd better listen up when we hear that. Because there is only one God and there's only one way to him. And that's what Paul's saying here. And so the problem of being alienated from Israel and strangers to the covenants is that that means they're separated from Christ and it means they're without hope and without God. And anybody who decides that they can ignore the God of Israel is in the same position. So that's how things start. But then in verse 13 to 18, we see what the Ephesians have become. So if it was BC, before Christ, now it's AD, it's in Christ. So this is what the, uh, the, the new life of the Ephesians looks like. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So this is a costly transaction. Whenever you read about blood in the Bible, it means sacrifice. It's a, it's a shorthand way of saying sacrifice. And if you've been around the Bible a long time or even a short time, you'll realise that what the, the Christian faith is about this, that God has made a way back to himself, but it took the sacrifice of his own son, the Lord Jesus. And that sacrifice involved him shedding innocent blood. And that's what Paul says is the instrument of bringing the people who are far off near to God. It was brought about by the blood of Christ. So how far off were these Ephesian Christians? Well, let's think a little bit about Ephesus in the first century. Uh, Ephesus is in that part of the world that the Romans called Asia Minor. It was at the the, uh, the western end of Asia, uh, the continent of Asia. It's that part of the world that we would now call Turkey. Uh, it was at that time a coastal port on the uh, the Mediterranean Sea, but the, the port's all silted up. So if you go to Ephesus now, you'd have to travel a few miles inland. But Paul went there on his third missionary journey, and you can read about that starting at the book of Acts chapter 18. So Paul went to this city. Now, Ephesus was one of the greatest cities of the ancient world. It was one of the most significant and powerful and rich cities in the Roman world. Has anybody been there? Ricky has. Talk to Ricky. Am I getting it right? (laughs) Talk to Ricky. Um, When you're allowed to cruise the Mediterranean again, and when you've been properly vaccinated, um, one of the popular places to go is Ephesus. And some of its grandeur still remains even in the ruins. And so there's the Celsus Library. Uh, Very impressive example of ancient Roman architecture and bits of it are still there. But when Paul preached in Ephesus, his preaching was of such power 
taken by the Holy Spirit and used in people's lives, that these people who had built their lives around the practice of magic, they believed in lots of gods, but they also believed that you could manipulate the gods through wearing magic charms and through knowing magic spells. Now, Paul's preaching took a hold, and we're told there that, uh, that these people came and burnt their amulets, they burnt their magic spell books, and the value of those was 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, a piece of silver was a day's wage. So 50,000 days' wages is 137 years of, of salary. And in our equivalent, if we were to say the average Australian wage is 89,000 a year, in one night they burnt $12,200,000 worth of magic stuff. Friends, that's commitment, isn't it? They've invested heavily in this stuff that they thought was going to work but they've now realised that they've got to turn their back and bury their past and they burn it. Now that's a very stark message to their neighbours. I want no further part of the life that I once thought was normal. They've turned their back on it completely and they've given public witness of that by burning it. Now Ephesus was famous as being one of the centres where the seven, one of the seven wonders of the world was. Um, there's only one of the seven wonders that's still existence. Did you know that? It's the pyramids in Egypt. The rest of them have gone by the wayside. But one, and the, the historian who came up with the list of the seven most important buildings in the world, Herodotus, was a Greek historian, and he said the Temple of Diana was number one on the list of seven. Now, Diana or Artemis. Diana was a Roman name. Artemis was her Ephesian name. And so the goddess Artemis was held to be the, the patron goddess of the city of Ephesus. If you wanted to do well in Ephesus, in business, in family life, in farming, you need to make sure that you prayed in a way that Goddess Artemis would listen and answer. And the success of the whole city was seen as being dependent on the favour of Artemis. So guess how well it's going to be viewed when people say Artemis isn't actually a god? How's that going to go down with your neighbours? they're going to start to think, well, maybe you're a threat to social cohesion. Now, what happened was many people did turn to the Lord Jesus and they turned their back on the worship of the goddess Artemis. And there were people there that got really upset. And one of them was a man named uh, Demetrius. You can read about him in Acts chapter 19. And he gathered lots of the craftsmen around because they used to make little silver models of the, the, the goddess and they also used to make little silver replicas of the temple. And you could take these home as lucky charms. And so many people came to Christ through the preaching of Paul that Demetrius said, he's ruining our business model and we better deal with this. And so he got all of the people together and they whipped up a frenzy in the city of Ephesus because they said that Paul was teaching that these gods made with hands are not gods. In other words, they're atheos. They're not gods. And so this represented a threat to Ephesus and so they got, the, um, they got the gang together and they had a riot. And they dragged some of the Christians into the theatre in Ephesus, which is still there, an extraordinary architectural achievement. Paul wanted to go in and talk to the mob, but they said, no, you'll be torn limb from limb, so they didn't. But all of these, these places are still there and this is where the gospel first took root. As at at great risk to Paul and to those who came on board with his teaching. 
So the Ephesians were separated from Christ, they were alienated from Israel, they were strangers to the covenants, they were without hope and without God. But now, says Paul, with all of that in the past, you were once far off, but now you've been brought near. You Gentiles and Jews have not just been brought close to each other, you've been made into a new humanity. What an ex- That's a miracle. No politician has it within themselves to be able to reconcile people. Some years ago I met an Aboriginal man from the Northern Territory and uh, we were doing some music together up at Tamworth at the Country Festival and he announced to the crowd that we were singing to reconciliation between Aboriginals and, and white people won't happen except in the Lord Jesus. That's what he said. I didn't say it for him, I didn't ask him to say it. He said it. There's no reconciliation outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what brought Gentiles and Jews together in Ephesus. It's the only hope of a world of our world. Jesus is our peace. He's abolished all of those previous classifications. He's taken care of all of those things that separated us not only from God, but from each other. Because once you understand what Jesus has done for you, once you understand how far you've come in him, you'll realise in a powerful way that that makes you very equal with other people. Because all of the things that we use to classify ourselves are done away with. There's no place for thinking, oh, I'm a superior kind of person. Of course God would look with favour on me, but that person there, well, he's got a lot more work to do. No, because I realise I'm a sinner and they're a sinner and that is the ground of our equality. Both needed the intervention of God who sent his son to shed his blood. That's how deep and serious the problem of sin is. And once we come to realise that, that is the ground of our equality with anyone else. I'm a sinner, they're a sinner. We've both been saved by one God through his son. And that's how Jesus becomes our peace. Now, when Paul says the dividing wall of hostilities come down, what he's thinking about is the temple in Jerusalem. The temple was a building in a very large complex. It was 300 metres wide by 500 metres long. That would take up a big chunk of Mafra, wouldn't it? Imagine if you had a complex that was 300 wide, 500 metres long, with a 20-storey temple in the middle of it. But there was a section of that temple complex that... Um, yeah, I'm falling out of my pattern here... Uh, There was a section of that temple complex where there was a wall. Gentiles could go up to the wall, but they couldn't go beyond it. And so that's what Paul has in mind when he's got the dividing wall of hostility in his mind. He says there are some people who are near, there are some people who are far. The near ones are the Jews. Near, but not there. Because they need to come through Jesus as well. But the Gentiles are far off. But Paul says... The miracle of the gospel, the miracle of what happened on the cross at Calvary is that that dividing wall of hostility has been broken. It's been breached. The dividing wall that once had this rock with an inscription, if you pass here, your death is on your own head. Paul says that's come down. And now Christ is making a new humanity of Gentiles and Jews where they're both equal and they both have equal access to God the Father. And it's all through the reconciling work of the Lord Jesus. He affects reconciliation. So Jews and Gentiles, when we talk to God, it's because we have access to him. Have you ever tried to make an appointment with an important person? 
I've tried to make a point, Mr. Speak, to our local member. You don't just rock up. You don't just bang on the door and say, Russ, I'm here. Right? You need to make an appointment. Right? Imagine if you wanted to see the Prime Minister. How many secretaries would you have to go through? They've got guards at the palace. No one gets in to see the Queen. You and I have access to God through Jesus. We don't have to make an appointment. We just need to come in Jesus' name. And what we see in verse 19 there is the Trinity in action. Verse 18, the, the Trinity in action. Because through Christ, the Son, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Don't let anybody tell you the Trinity is not important. It matters that God is one God in three persons. Because God the Father, we need to be reconciled to him. We're reconciled to him through the shed blood of his Son. And it's in the Spirit that that takes place. That we get that formula there. Through Christ the Son, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. And so this has got implications. We become God's new temple. We become... We get a vision of, of humanity's glorious destiny in these last couple of verses. So then Paul says in verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We've become citizens of a new commonwealth, of a glorious new humanity in Christ. Those old distinctions have been broken down. And that, uh, that citizenship... That new status is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The Old Testament people believed in the word of the prophets. It was recorded in what we call the Old Testament. Uh, The New Testament people were, were believing in the teaching of the apostles who inherited the mantle from the Old Testament prophets. The apostles are God's spokesman with God's word and God's message for us. Our faith is built on the foundation of God's word mediated through his servants, the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The foundation is the apostles and the prophets. They gave us the teaching that we want to build our lives on, but it's the Lord Jesus who's the cornerstone who holds the whole building straight. And we're told there that we've been built into a temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Alec Matias says that that really is the theme of the whole Bible. He's a, a, an Irish Bible scholar. Uh, the whole Bible is bound together around this single theme, I will be your God and you will be my people. God wants to live inside of us, not just as individuals but in the church. Do, is that how you think of Mafra Community Church? If someone says, where's your church, what would you say? Here's our church. Not this, this isn't a church, it's just a building. We're the church. We're where God lives by his Holy Spirit. The new humanity that God's creating is not just a bunch of individuals. It's a bunch of people who've been reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit. But we're now where God lives by his Holy Spirit. The the goal of God to live among his people has been fulfilled through Jesus in a gathering like ours. Now the temple of Diana, the temple of Artemis would have been a pretty impressive thing. Imagine back, being a Christian back in Ephesus and they said to you, oh, where's your God live? And they say, in here. Would that have impressed anybody? When they could say, there's our God's house. Well, what's happened to the temple of Artemis? I hear you ask. 
Well, in the, cro- in the cross, it's been abolished. And all that's left in Ephesus is just a column and a bit of masonry. That's what happened to the Temple of Artemis. And you see, that's what's going to happen to all the earth's kingdoms when, it, when they come under the judgment of the Lord Jesus. Now, the church in Ephesus isn't in great shape either, but the, the message of the Gospel of Ephesus has taken root in other places, including Mafra. Because you see, the triumph of the cross is complete and it will accomplish all that God has purpose for it. And so our divided world, a world of division along racial lines, of gender lines, of political lines, we live in a deeply divided world, an uncomfortable world, a world which is really at war with itself. But the message of Ephesians, the message of the gospel is the same, then as it is now. The only hope of this world, the only hope for reconciliation is that the Lord Jesus is creating a new humanity. And by faith we become part of it. And by faith those walls come down. And by faith we understand that when we make right with God, we'll be made right with our neighbours. And it all comes through the work of the Lord Jesus on the cross. Christ's church, what we're part of here, we've become citizens We've become family of God. We've become God's dwelling place all through his son, the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to take these things to heart. These are great and glorious privileges. You've joined us to your eternal family through your saving son. Please help us to remember what we were and where we've come from and help us to rejoice in what we've become. Help us to rejoice humbly knowing that all this is by grace All this is something that you've accomplished on our behalf. Uh, But please help us to be agents of your reconciliation, taking this good news to others and help us to be careful to make sure that our church is a place that doesn't judge people on on false grounds. Uh, uh, Help us to remember that we're all sinners saved by grace and that in Christ uh, those old walls of division have come down because he's creating one people for you. So help us to live as though that's true and as though we mean it too. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.